almost done with the book of Acts. I can't believe that. But we're in chapter 27. That's the second to last chapter in Acts. And, uh, and we're going to cover the whole chapter today. And uh, it, it all fits together. It would not make sense to try and separate it out. Um, but that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, to give you a little bit of context, in case you weren't here the last couple of weeks, we've had um, Paul has been making his journey finally to Rome. He set through a whole lot of defenses uh, before the Jewish council, the two Roman governors, King Agrippa II. And, uh, and now he's finally on his way to Rome. But before he goes to Rome and ends up in two years under house arrest in Rome, which is where the book of Acts leaves him, before all that happens, he has to go through all sorts of stormy weather and, and even a shipwreck in the Mediterranean Sea on the way to Rome. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, once again, one of the major themes, which we see all throughout Acts, is God's protection of his people, God's protection of his sent ones, his apostles, his messengers, those that are bearing the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And so we will once again see God's hand of protection as Paul, as God's messenger, brings a message of hope to the hopeless. And so it lines up perfectly with our Advent candle theme for this week. One of my favorite uh, Bible verses is, uh, is in James. It's James chapter 4. You've probably heard it before, but I, I'm always convicted by it. I go back to it time and time again. But in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet, he goes on to say, You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. For you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So these inspired words from the the pen of James remind us that we sometimes lift our eyes, and we're all guilty of this, we sometimes lift our eyes to the horizon with a sense of faith in our own abilities in our own capacities, or in a sense, uh, in our own assumptions about what the future holds. We sort of think we know, whether we say it explicitly or not, what's going to happen down the road. Uh, and, and we look to the horizon ahead, ultimately, when we do that, with a false foundation for hope. Guys, our foundation for hope can't be in ourselves and our own abilities. It certainly can't be in our assumptions about what the future holds, because none of us know even what's going to happen later on today even during this sermon, okay? But instead of looking to the horizon with a false foundation of hope, we can look to the heavens above with faith. And that's really what we're looking at today. Don't just look to the horizon with a false foundation for hope, but but lift your eyes a little bit more up to the heavens where God is so that we put our faith in him. And it's often, the thing that teaches us this lesson is often failure. And that's A lot of the times, and that's true in my life as well as yours, I'm sure, what turns us from those false hopes to this kind of faith in God. It's failure. It's the revelation that these were, in fact, false hopes. And today's big idea, and I I tried to make it short and sweet so it'll stick with us, is that God allows failure for the sake of faith. God allows failure for the sake of faith. And our passage emphasizes basically three related aspects of God's dealings with his people and with humanity in general. The first that we'll look at is that he allows the failure of false hopes. 
God allows us to fail when we move forward, move ahead in life with false hopes, to expose the falseness of our hopes. Secondly, though, he gives true hope to the hopeless. When our false hopes fail, he comes alongside us with the message of true hope in Jesus Christ. And then the third thing is he gives help to those who look to him for hope. So as we hear that message of hope, as we look to the Lord with hope, he he doesn't just leave us out there on our own. He comes alongside us with encouragement and help for those who turn to him for hope. So let's look at those three things. They're all related, and they're going to kind of walk us through our passage today. So God allows the failure of false hopes. Guys, this is the difficult lesson of the first 20 verses of chapter 27, not to mention the entire rest of Scripture (laughs) and our lives and our experience. Uh, It's a difficult lesson that God allows the failure of false hopes. So in verses 1 through 8, that's a little chunk of our, of our chapter. It all holds together. In chapter, uh, in chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, we see hope uh, tested by unforeseen difficulties. All right? So Paul is placed at the beginning of chapter 27 in the custody of a centurion by the name of Julius, who seems like a pretty nice guy. Uh, He seems like a pretty stand-up guy. He allows Paul some freedoms and allows him to see his friends in some of the port towns they go into. But he's put in the custody of the centurion who who finds a series of two different ships, probably cargo ships. They didn't have passenger ships back then. They didn't have a cruise line or anything. So they would pick up like cargo ships carrying grain from Egypt and things like this. And so the centurion finds two different ships. And I think I've got a map that shows you where they go from Caesarea up the coastline of Palestine, and then they kind of curve around Cyprus, the island over here. And then they end up in Myra, which is the southernmost point of Asia Minor. And then when it changes color, they change ships, and they end up going westward. They mean to go westward. They end up going southwest. We'll look at that in a second. But that's pretty much the map for the first part of their journey. And so along the way... The hopes of the centurion, the soldiers, uh, the, the other passengers, the sailors, the crew, along the way, their hopes are tested by unforeseen difficulties. And I'm not going to read all of the scriptures we look at today because it's the entire chapter. But uh, Luke mentions contrary winds near Cyprus. That's why they have to kind of hug Cyprus over there is because they have contrary winds that they're trying to soften with the landmass. Uh, he also mentions slow and difficult sailing. And winds that force them to change their course near Crete. That's why you see that sharp veer to the southwest towards Crete to go around. Again, they're trying to uh, deal with those contrary winds. And so they wrap around Crete to the southern uh, end of the island. And so there's all this, this difficulty that they did not foresee happening. But eventually, at least in these first eight verses, their ship arrives at a place called Fair Havens, which is, it means good harbor. So they get to a place called Good Harbor on the southern coast of Crete. And that's verses 1 through 8. So they have hopes. They're hopeful that they're going to get to Rome. But then they hit these unforeseen difficulties. And all of a sudden, they're not quite where they wanted to be. Now let's look at verses 9 through 12. Here we see how difficulties can increase as false hopes lead us to reject wise counsel. Sometimes when we're putting our hope in false hopes... They can lead us away from wise counsel and wisdom, and particularly in terms of our understanding of God and God's word. 
um, but just in general as well. So the slow sailing, these adverse winds, these other unforeseen difficulties on their voyage meant that the ship had to remain longer than expected in fair havens on the south side of Crete. They were not expecting to stay that long, but they couldn't get out of there, and they kept looking for the, the right weather to get out of there, okay? So their, their hopes are again being tested. And the ship's crew, they didn't think that good harbor was good enough, and so they wanted a better harbor. Uh, and so they wanted to go about 50 miles west to the southwestern end of the island of Crete to find a harbor where they could uh, have a little more protection from the waves that would buffet the ship. Uh, because during the winter months, between mid-November and mid-March, nobody sailed the Mediterranean because it was very stormy. A lot of storms could crop up. It was just really hazardous and dangerous to sail at that time. So they wanted to go to this better harbor about 50 miles down the coastline. But Paul, who, if you track it in the book of Acts, he's already sailed thousands of miles. Paul had a ton of experience sailing in these ships and cargo vessels already, just in his missionary journeys, right? He had also been shipwrecked, I think, two or three times, uh, he writes to the Corinthians. Before this uh, passage today, he's already been shipwrecked at least twice. He spent a day and a night floating around on some flotsam in the deep, he says. And so he has a lot of knowledge, particularly about hazardous journeys on the sea. And so he warns the crew and the soldiers that are with him that damage and great loss would occur if they continued this journey. But the argument of the ship's crew, and you got to understand, this is a money-making vessel, right? This is a grain uh, cargo ship from Egypt going to Rome. And so they want to get their goods and get paid for their goods, all right? So there's, there's incentive on the owner and the captain to convince them to go ahead and, and move forward. Plus, the Roman government insured their, their cargo in case it went down in a storm. So, you know, they're kind of looking at it going, maybe we should go ahead and move on, not spend the next three months here um, to get to that better harbor. So they wanted to find this place. Paul says, don't do it. Don't leave Fair Havens. But he gets ultimately rejected, his advice, and they put out to sea to reach the better harbor. Uh, in verses 13 to 20, we see how increasing difficulties can cause our hopes to fail. Do you see how it's notching up a little bit? It's notching up some unforeseen contrary winds, having to change direction, having to stay a little bit longer than we expected. And then we get to 13 through 20, and this is where it really gets notched up a bit. So they dismiss Paul's warning, and this change in winds gives the crew a false sense of hope that they would be able to achieve their goal of reaching that better harbor. So there's a, a, I believe it's a southerly wind that can allow them to hug the coastline to make it that 50 miles to that better harbor. And so the sailors are looking and they're judging the winds and it's already taken a long time. And they're like, okay, we're hopeful that this is the one. This is going to allow us to get to where we're going down the coastline. And so they set out and, uh, and as soon as they leave Fair Havens, this, this uh, it's basically a strong northeasterly wind comes down from the island in a southwesterly direction uh, or a southeasterly direction. And, and the wind drives the ships away from the coastline, the ship, into the open sea. And this is not what you wanted to happen at this time of the year. You did not want to be driven past the coastline or beyond the coastline into open sea. They can't turn the ship around. I've got another map of that. Yeah. So see how they're trying to hug the coastline and then this, this wind comes and blows them and drives them out to sea. And they try and kind of pull things together along this little island called Cauda. 
And then they end up just going out into the open sea towards the, the coast of Africa. And so they're kind of freaking out at this point. And so the crew does everything they can, given the difficult circumstances. But this whole section of 13 through 20, really 1 through 20, our first 20 verses, even though it began with the brief hope of finding better harbor, it ends with hopeless despair. So they go out hopeful at the beginning of the trip. Even when they're having to stay too long in good harbor, they're still hopeful with this wind that changes. But the, the, the section ends with them basically in despair. And I'll read you that verse. Uh, Kevin read it earlier, but it's verse 20. It says, Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Do you know how they know where they are in ships? By the stars. And so it's so overcast and gloomy and stormy that they can't see the stars. They can't get their bearings. And it says, for many days, and no small storm was assailing us. That means a big storm was assailing them the whole time. From then on, Luke writes, all hope of our being saved was slowly abandoned. Day after day after day of darkness, and everyone started abandoning hope. So, point of this first section is that God allows our false hopes to fail us. Um, our family is about to hit a milestone that we never expected to reach. Uh, in two weeks, on December 11th, we're going to hit the one-year anniversary of the house fire that we experienced last December. That was, des- that was almost a year ago. In two weeks, that's a one-year uh, anniversary. And uh, Stacy had a good idea to, we had two different fire stations come. We had like six fire trucks, so we're going to go on the anniversary and just go bring a basket to each one of those fire stations just to say thank you uh, on the anniversary of that fire because they really did an amazing job putting that thing out and saving our house. But anyway, we never thought we were going to hit a one-year anniversary when we moved into the rental home down the street. We thought, eh, six months. You know, you hear people talk about inspections and things like this lasting a long time. But we thought, surely we're going to be back in our house by the one-year anniversary. And yet, here we are, and we're not expecting to be back in our house by the one-year anniversary, okay? Um, And I'm not going to recount all the unexpected twists and turns along the way. That would take too long. But suffice it to say that we have experienced many unforeseen setbacks and delays that have been discouraging, that have been frustrating, to say the least. And some of you guys know some of that. So we have appreciated your prayers. Uh, That's really carried us through this season of of setbacks and delays and frustrations and everything else. So thank you for your prayers. And I am happy to say that the Lord has been at work in our hearts. Even while the work has kind of stalled out on our house, he's been at work on our hearts. Um, And in particular, he's been teaching us to put our hope in him and in him alone. Not in our expectations or our assumptions about what the future holds, uh, but to put our trust in his will, in his purposes, in his promises for peace and joy through Jesus Christ our Lord, rather than in the ever-changing winds of city inspectors and subcontractors. And if you've ever done a remodel or had a house fire, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Those winds are tricky. So God is good and in his goodness... In his goodness, he has allowed the false foundations of our fickle hopelessness to fail so that we would fix our eyes on him. So, what about you guys? This is the part where you get to apply it to your life. When have unforeseen difficulties caused you to lose hope in yourself, 
or in others or in your circumstances or your assumptions about the future, what it holds. And when you meet those unforeseen difficulties, how has your anger, your frustration, your sadness, your despair led you to lift your eyes to the Lord who alone can provide us an unshakable hope in this life? Think about that. God allows false hopes to fail us because, and this is our second section, God gives true hope to the hopeless. God wants you to pour all that false hope out of the cup that is your life so that he can fill you up with true hope. And that's exactly what we see him doing in verses 21 to 26. And this is really the, the, the core of today's passage is verses 21 through 26. So first, let's look at verses 21 and 22. And here we see how God lovingly encourages. He rebukes. And you'll see that in the passage. But he also lovingly encourages us to find hope in his salvation, despite even the promise of future difficulties that we will face. He doesn't promise us that, I'm sorry about those unforeseen difficulties, that won't happen again. He doesn't say that. In fact, in our passage, he says there are going to be even more unforeseen difficulties, but he's going to encourage us to put our faith in him, to find hope in his salvation. So the people on Paul's ship, they had lost their appetites. Did you, did you notice that when Kevin read this earlier? That they had lost their appetites, and that was either because of extreme seasickness, which you can imagine in a cargo vessel like they would have had in the first century on those storms for that many days. So either they don't have any appetites because they're vomiting too much over the side of the boat or because of the anxiety that comes from their hopelessness. Either way, or maybe both, but either way, they're in a bad spot. So Paul addresses and encourages all of these downcast, despairing, hopeless people, over 200 of them, And this is what he says, starting in verse 21. Paul encourages them and says, Men, you should have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete. He's not saying that to make them feel bad about themselves. He's saying that to draw their attention to his trustworthiness. And he says, And thereby spared yourselves this damage and loss. And yet now I urge you to keep up your courage For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So in verses 23 to 24, we see how God directs us to find comfort in his revealed will and promises. So the source of Paul's encouragement, the reason Paul is encouraging and can be an encouragement to all these despairing people is because he's received a word sent from God about God's purpose and plans, not just for Paul, but also for the rest of the passengers on the ship. And this is what he says. He says, For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong, whom I also serve. Don't you love how he introduces God to all these pagan people? The God to whom I belong, whom I also serve, came to me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. You must. That's the divine must. It means that in God's sovereignty and providential wisdom, this is going to happen. This has got to happen. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has graciously granted you all those who are sailing with you. 
the protection God is placing over Paul is being extended by God's grace to all those other passengers on the ship. I love that. And so in verses 25 to 26, we see how God uses and continues to use his messenger to encourage hopeless people to believe in him and him alone for salvation, even though, again, future difficulties are inevitable. Remember, he says you're going to lose the ship, but you're not going to lose your lives. So Paul's faith in God for salvation shines brightly on a very dark voyage with very dismal, despairing people. His faith in his God shines brightly in what would otherwise be a hopeless situation for them. And it's important to understand, I think five different times in today's passage, we see some variation of the Greek word where we get the term save or salvation from. And it shows up in different forms throughout our passage, I think like five times. But this is in a secular usage of salvation. And so that word for being saved or salvation, it can mean from physical harm or physical death, being saved from that, being rescued in that sense, which is what we see in our passage. But it also, all throughout Acts and through the rest of the New Testament, refers to spiritual salvation, refers to being saved from eternal death and judgment and condemnation. And, And so what's happening here is we're seeing, this isn't an allegory, this is a true historical account, but Paul... Paul, and through the inspired pen of of Luke, his companion on this very journey who's with him, is showing us a physical rescue or a physical salvation that is symbolic for the, the salvation we can have through Jesus Christ in a spiritual sense. Because, guys, that's ultimately what we're talking about when we talk about hope in Christ. It's not to be rescued from all the physical dangers and, and ultimately from physical death. All of us are going to die physically someday. That's part of how sin is is being worked out, either we're going to die or if we happen to be alive when Jesus Christ comes back to get us, but most of us are going to die physically. So he's not promising to save us from every physical danger or from physical death. What ultimately this points to is our spiritual salvation through Christ, the hope of eternal life that we have through Christ So all this to say, only God can give true hope to the hopeless. Um, As we've been waiting for our home to be rebuilt, we've been realizing that God is at work in the waiting. God is not waiting. God is working. We feel like we're waiting. God is working, okay? In fact, our unexpected delays have led several times now, and just recently in the last week, our waiting around, or that's what it feels like, has led to opportunities to encourage others around us. Um, Just the other day, our project manager, I don't think he would mind me telling you this. He's a believer, and he and his family are are facing some really hard circumstances, some very unforeseen difficulties going into the holiday season. And it's affected him. It's affected his capacities, his ability to do some different things. And he's really sorry Uh, In fact, that's why he told me, he's like, I'm so sorry that my capacity has been diminished because this happened and we're trying to deal with this. And you know what? I was able to encourage him and to remind him as a fellow brother in Christ that I believed wholeheartedly that the timeline for us getting back in our house was fully in God's hands. In other words, God's not going to go, oh man, I wanted him back in there by December 10th. I 
I don't know what happened. I better get to work on this city inspector, right? That, that wasn't it. So I got to encourage this guy who himself had faced unforeseen difficulties, just as we had, as he was losing hope or at least being discouraged, I got to remind him that this thing is in God's hands. So as Christians, we get to learn to trust God for true hope, ultimately in our spiritual salvation, so that we can then help others do the same. So sometimes we forget that God is at work in the world around us, even as we are waiting for something to happen. Sometimes we kind of superimpose our, you know, patting our foot, waiting around, waiting for that thing to happen so we can move on with life. And we sort of superimpose that or project that onto God. God's never patting his foot, anxiously waiting for something to happen. Like God is sovereign and God's providence shines through. And, and if, if we trust him and know that he has a perfect plan he's working out, even in the most gut-wrenching circumstances in our life, and I know that's hard to do, but if we will just trust him and know that he is good and gracious and loving, then we too can, can not only bear the fruit of that in our own lives, but we can show other people that God's trustworthy and that they can trust in God and find hope in him as well. So here's another application question. Who has God placed in the waiting room of life with you? Things aren't going the way you thought they would. They're not moving along as quickly as you thought. Who is alongside you in that waiting room? Who might be struggling with with unforeseen difficulties and, and right now is being tempted toward despair and hopelessness? Family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. Do you know a hopeless person who is searching for hope, for something to anchor their life into that is reliable and trustworthy, and they simply need someone like you to point them to Christ. I don't doubt that God puts people in your life so that you can point them to to true hope in Christ. So who might that person be this holiday season? Or even another Christian who has looked at the, the wind and the waves. Remember Peter walking on the water? And as long as he was looking at Christ, he was walking on water. It was a miracle. But as soon as he started looking at the wind and the waves, the storm at night, he started to sink. He started to lose sight of Christ. So is there another Christian who sees the wind and the waves and they need to be reminded of God's love in Christ and the assurance of his salvation? Somebody questioning, does God really love me? Can I really be assured of my salvation through faith in Christ? Think about that. So we've seen how God allows false hopes to fail so that he can give true hope to hopeless people. But he doesn't stop there. God also gives help to the hopeful. He gives help to those who turn to him for hope. This is the God we serve. This is who loves us and cares for us. In verses 27 through 38, we see God encouraging people who are striving to be obedient And he comes alongside them with the assurance of his salvation. So the passengers are finally prepared to listen to Paul and to obey this messenger from God. Did you notice that? They they dismissed what he had to say, uh, even though he had traveled quite a bit over the seas and he had a message from God and he was wise and providing counsel. They dismissed him. But now on the back end, They're ready to listen and they're ready to obey his instructions, this messenger from this God, this strange God they didn't know. So when the ship's crew feared shipwreck, they started taking soundings and realized that they were getting shallower and shallower. So the sailors who were seasoned 
you know, sailors, they thought, well, we're about to run aground and shipwreck. So they get freaked out and they try and escape on the ship's boat. There's like a dinghy that goes with the ship and they're trying to lower it and kind of fool everybody and get out of there. And so Paul tells the soldiers that salvation would only be possible if everyone remained on board with Paul. He's saying, don't let them go. They need to be on here with us. This is for all of us to be saved together. And so the soldiers, now ready to listen to and obey Paul, they cut the ropes to the ship's boat and let the ship, the boat on the ship, go out to sea. They, they were willing to lose it by obeying Paul's instructions. So despite the, the growing fears of these seasoned sailors, the soldiers demonstrate faith in Paul. And ultimately, here's the point, not just Paul, but ultimately faith in Paul's God by keeping the group together on the doomed ship, even as God had promised that the ship itself would be shipwrecked and they, they would lose it. So then Luke tells us that Paul continued to encourage everyone on board through the night until the new day dawned. And as a further act of faith, he instructs them to all eat their fill of food to gain energy in anticipation of God's promised salvation. It's like uh, the Passover in the book of Exodus where he says, you know, get ready because you're going to be traveling. And so pack your bags, you know, gird up your clothing, put on your traveling boots, sandals, and, uh, and get ready. And that's what he's saying. He's like, get ready because you're going to see God's salvation today. So eat some food before we throw it all out uh, and, and, and eat, eat your fill. So even as Paul encouraged his fellow travelers, he made sure to put the spotlight on God. And this is what's cool about Paul. He always wants to put the spotlight back on God and back on Jesus Christ as Lord. So look at how he does this. This is not communion, by the way, all right? Even though it sounds like it, and there's reasons for that, but this is Paul putting the spotlight on God. I'll read it, in verse, starting verse 34. It said, Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your survival. For not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. And it says, and he includes himself here, Luke does, we were 276 people on the ship in all. And you're thinking, how did 276 people get on a first century cargo ship? There's records of 600 people being on cargo ships back in the day. They're actually pretty big. But there's 276 people that went ahead and ate to gain their energy because they were looking forward with anticipation to the salvation promised by Paul's God. And that's pretty cool. And then in our final verses, 39 to 44, we see how God encourages us to remain obedient, to keep striving to be obedient to God despite the fears as we anticipate God's promised salvation. So just as Paul had predicted, as the ship heads toward land, they spot land. It turns out to be the island of Malta, but they see this land in the distance. They notice there's a bay, a, a, a sandy bay, where they can kind of steer the ship and kind of run it, run it aground so that they can get to the land. And so that's what they do. But even as Paul predicted, the ship, as it's heading towards land, it strikes a reef and it, it starts to be broken. So it sticks in the kind of clay sea bottom in that part of the Mediterranean Sea and it sticks tight and the waves start beating against it and tearing the ship apart. Okay, And remember, Paul had predicted this. So the soldiers, 
When you're a Roman soldier in charge of a, a prisoner, if your prisoner escapes, guess who dies in their place? You die, okay? So they're fearful that some prisoners are going to escape somehow from the ship that's being wrecked against this reef or against uh, by the waves. And so they want to kill all the prisoners because they didn't want to die in their place if they escaped, right? Including Paul. And so this is their plan. But the centurion who's in charge of all of them, Julius, he wants to save Paul. He wants to keep Paul alive. He's grown to trust Paul and Paul's God, it seems. So he keeps the soldiers from responding out of fear and putting to death all the prisoners. And everybody instead responds in faith, trusting in Paul's instructions and in the promised protection of Paul's God. And after stormy darkness on uncertain seas for however many days, our passage ends with the salvation of all 276 souls aboard that ship. And Luke simply records, and I'll, yeah, you got the map up there. They end up at Malta. They were planning on getting up to Rome up here. Um, But Luke just ends our passage and he says this, and so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. So as the passengers revealed a hope in God by obeying Paul, God comes alongside them. Do you see how he does that? They're trying to obey. They're trying to quiet the fears. They're trying to not pay attention to how these people are fearfully reacting over here. And as they strive to obey God's messenger, ultimately God, God comes alongside them in grace and kindness to encourage them and to help them in their faith. And in the middle of the night of despair to remain hopeful so that they would await his salvation. So I got one final illustration about our house fire situation. I don't know, it just worked for all three passages today. Um, But we have been faced with a constant temptation, as you can imagine, toward frustration and fearfulness about everything from time frames to finances and everything imaginable. Constant temptation towards frustration, anger, self-pity, but also fear about, you know, how much is that going to cost or how long are we going to be out or what if they, you know, rent the rental house out from under us or whatever else. And, you know, in the midst of all those unknowns, God is calling us to be faithful and obedient, not by getting rid of all those unknowns and giving us the blueprint for the rest of our lives every step of the way. Right? That's not how he works. Okay. But in the middle of all those unknowns, he's calling us to be faithful and obedient, which means trusting him with everything from the time frames to the finances and everything in between instead of faithlessly grumbling and complaining all the time or falling into self-pity or anger or despair. We have not done this perfectly. I am not up here saying we are the perfect shining example of faithfulness over these past 12 months. But this has been our desire, and we've talked about it. We want to be faithful. We don't want to just sit around grumbling and complaining. And God has come alongside us to encourage us and to remind us of his goodness and his provision every step of the way. And honestly, this has come more often than not just in the form of your words and your prayers to God on our behalf. I mean, this church family has faithfully prayed for us over these last 12 months, and we appreciate it. Uh, also in the willingness of so many members of both this church family and our own family and extended family, your willingness 
to come alongside us, not even just to pray for us, but to come along in practical ways, offering to, to pay the lease on our rental to be extended, and everything you can imagine, every way that you could provide for us, you've offered it, and it's been amazing. And so as we've turned to the Lord for hope, he has helped us to remain hopeful, and more often than not, he does it through his people, through you. So think about your own life and your circumstances. When have you been tempted to be disobedient due to fears and anxieties? And disobedience can look like complaining and grumbling and self-pity and despair. And as you've trusted in God in those moments, how has he come alongside you with encouragement to remain hopeful, ultimately to keep your ultimate hope anchored in Jesus Christ? How has he come alongside you to encourage you even on the most difficult of days, even on the darkest of nights? So think about that. So I want to sum up by reviewing our passage. There's a theme here of darkness and light. Maybe you caught it. So it starts out hopeful, right? Our passage, quick little trip over to Rome. We do it all the time. We'll just load up the passengers, find a second ship, disembark. We'll be there in no time. Starts out hopeful, but in verse 20, what do we have? We have darkness and hopelessness, even though the voyage had been begun with hope of calm seas and quick passage. And then after that, that, that passage of, of hopelessness and despair and darkness, in verses 23 and 24, it says, During the night, in the middle of the darkness, an angel of God encourages Paul with the hope of salvation. Again, in a physical sense here, but a symbolic uh, of our eternal hope, of our spiritual hope of salvation. And then in verses 27 to 29, it says about midnight, the middle of the night, right smack in the middle on the 14th night of darkness, it says the sailors wished for daybreak. These pagan people on the ship with Paul, and some translations say praying, and it's reminiscent of the Greek sailors in the book of Jonah, where they're on the ship with Jonah on the Mediterranean, They're wishing for daybreak. And then in verse 33, we read that until that new day dawned, Paul encouraged everyone on the ship with the hope of salvation through God. And then finally, in verses 39 to 44, when the new day arrives, they see land and they are ultimately saved as a result of obedience to God's messenger. They responded in faith to God's message through Paul, and they were all saved and not a hair of their head perished. So today's passage is a movement from light to darkness and then from darkness to light. And what is the turning point? It is Paul's statement about believing in God for the hope of salvation. So wherever you might be on that spectrum, whether you have had false hopes in yourself or in others or in your assumptions about the future that have failed you and circumstances seem to be fading to black as they were in the first 20 verses of our passage, or whether you're striving to be obedient amidst real unforeseen difficulties that would otherwise lead to fear and anxiety and despair, Paul's voyage to Rome reminds us that even though God allows our false hopes to fail, He will always give hope to the hopeless, and he will always give help to the hopeful as we lift our eyes from the horizon ahead to the heavens above. And next week, we're going to begin the final chapter of Acts. We're going to spend two weeks in that final chapter, 
And we're going to see God continuing to use Paul and his difficulties for God's glory and for the good of others. We're going to turn to that next week. So let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll have a time for communion. Please bow your heads with me.